Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome to Election R&D. I'm here with, uh, I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future uh, at USC Dornsife. I'm here with Mike Murphy, uh, our co-director. Uh, and I want to thank our partners at the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival and Jamie Cabler. Uh, we're here to talk about an issue that really presses on the minds of a lot of people right now and that may be critical to the outcome of the election. And we're very fortunate to have with us Cynthia McFadden. Uh, she's the senior legal and investigative correspondent for NBC News. She was formerly an anchor and correspondent at ABC and co-anchored Nightline. And this year, Cynthia, you won both an Emmy and an Edward R. Murrow Award. So congratulations and thanks for being here. Thank you. And most importantly, the mother of a USC student. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Fight on. <laughs> uh, so I think I'm going to start off with a kind of general question. Can voters have confidence in this election? Gosh, that's a big question and the ultimate one. I think in the sense that they can depend on the... Um, in, yes, I think the first answer is yes. And let me explain the yes part and then let me explain my concern. The yes is this. There is no evidence of significant voter fraud in the history of voting in America. As the Brennan Center, which studies such things and is a nonpartisan operator out of NYU, says, an American is more likely to be struck by lightning than to commit voter fraud. So on that sense, yes. And do I think that uh, absentee ballots, based on the evidence of past elections, are going to be fairly administered? Yes. The answer is overall yes. Within that, of course, there are always exceptions. Any system that uh, humans can design, humans can also manipulate. But I think in terms of the actual structure of the system, it is solid. It is safe. However, um, we are not impervious to tampering by foreign uh, actors, bad actors. And I'm going to be doing a story tomorrow morning on the Today Show that's going to take a look at some of those things, talking to some of the nation's top both cybersecurity experts and top intel experts. They are very concerned about what might happen, particularly if the outcome is close. And I have to say, I didn't know until recently that in 2016, the Russians actually had a plan to try to undermine Hillary Clinton's victory if she won narrowly against Donald Trump. So that plan is still on the shelf, and uh, <laughs> so I'm holding my breath. And ransomware. Ransomware is the other thing that is very troubling. Uh, last year alone, almost a 1,000 localities and, and counties and states actually had their systems attacked by a ransomware attack. Now, those can be foreign governments or just bad actors. Um, imagine what would happen in the circumstance where someone shuts down Cleveland's uh, ability to vote uh, for the bulk of the afternoon. So, yes, I think the system has integrity and can be patrolled. And, yes, I'm very worried about bad actors who may, see, may attempt to to interfere with it. What about President Trump's claim that mail-in voting leads to widespread fraud and 
his statement that after all, this should go to the Supreme Court in the end to decide whether or not these mail-in ballots should be counted. Well, that's very troubling. The president has said that without any evidence whatsoever. Uh, there is not anyone who has looked at election results and studied this process carefully who would back him up on that. And I have to say, it's very troubling to hear coming from the president of this country a real undermining of the, of the system by which he himself was elected. So uh, I don't think there's any evidence to, to back it up. And there are a lot of safeguards to make sure that the uh, vote by mail works and works fairly. Mike, you want to pick up for a minute? Yeah, the, the, one of the things is a big, complicated story, and I'll, I'll chime in on Trump in a minute. But one of the things that I was curious about is um, the leak that in 2016, foreign actors, I think it was the Russians, actually penetrated the voting machines in St. Lucie County, Florida. And mm -hmm. it, I think it was caught before it got too far. Uh, so it didn't have a material you know, impact on the outcome. But uh, is your reporting, you know, some of the, I, I look at this in kind of three ways. One, there's the, the interference in the campaign with Facebook ads and some of the stuff that was very much in the news last time. Uh, and then you've got some of this weird stuff around voter files, which are pretty accessible, but, you know, why would they want them? Targeting, not. And then finally, the idea of actually getting into voting infrastructure, which, again, I think we're much more prepared for. But can you kind of walk us through the whole infrastructure side and what we really know now based on the last few years? Yeah, I mean, you, you point out many of the things that are concerning to uh, officials as we're sitting here talking right now. Let me start at the end. Um, we are much more prepared than we were in 2016. Imagine this. In 2016, when Homeland Security and the FBI started getting signals that there was manipulation going on in various ways that Russian bad actors were trying to take action against our system. No one, imagine this, no one in the various states had sufficient security clearances for them to be able to talk to them. That's changed. That has changed. That all of them are now cleared. There's at least one person in every jurisdiction who's now cleared to be talked to by the by officials should that be necessary. And also state and localities, many of them have availed themselves of Homeland Security's offer to come and harden their actual physical voting system. So they've done that. But let me tell you, 30% of the country still votes on equipment that's more than 10 years old. Now think about it. How many times have you changed your cell phone in the last 10 years? I mean, many of these machines they, there are no security patches available, and many of these machines, uh, there are no spare parts. So do we have a somewhat antiquated system? You bet we do. Could it be better protected? Probably. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard uh, Christopher Ray say uh, from Homeland Security, this is the most defended, best prepared uh, system of voting when it comes to cyber defense ever. And I think that is true. It's in a much better position than it was. Good, good. Bob? What are the states doing to protect voting machines? I mean, you talked about how old they are, how antiquated they are. It's not a federal responsibility in the end, although the federal government, I think, should have done much more than it has so far. What are the states doing? So some of what the states are doing are asking for federal help. That's happened in virtually all the states. Virtually all the states have relied on the expertise of Homeland Security and others to come in and, and help patch problems where and how they could. So that's important. But, you know, I have to say, I probably talked to 
70 percent of the secretaries of state in swing states this year uh, and, and some others besides and i have been so incredibly impressed with the quality of their thought and the quality of their preparations they go into this these are by and large people who've made this their lives work and they are really they are anticipating problems and trying to deal with them in advance and i'm saying on both sides of the aisle uh, frank la rosa in ohio um, uh, to to the secretary of state um, benson and michigan democrat uh, they are really trying to prepare for all eventualities it, it's it's very impressive, to, to be honest. I think what I wanted to emphasize there is you're saying this is largely, in most states, a bipartisan commitment. Yeah, you know what? I have yet to talk to a Secretary of State who says, I see, this is not, this is not about being of one party or the other. We're here to serve the people and to let everyone who's eligible vote. And you know, their plans by and large really have tried to anticipate this, extending uh, voting hours when they can, e extending the ability to vote absentee when they can. And get this, probably 70%, according to the Secretary of State in Michigan, 70% of voters are gonna cast their ballot by absentee ballot. That's an enormous undertaking, just getting the ballots out and getting them back. And then we have the Postal Service, which we don't even need to get into, which is such a challenge. So states have tried to resolve that by creating these drop boxes. Um, well, what about the ability to tamper with drop boxes? So states have set up uh, camera observation and other observations of drop boxes to make sure that they stay safe. They're trying to anticipate these problems. And I have to say, by and large, it's pretty impressive. Cynthia, question about, so the president makes all this noise about how everything's fraudulent and, you know, there, there's clearly, he's, there's no factual basis for any of it. But there is one little corner of this debate, which is confusing, and I think it's probably worth a little clarification, because I think there could be a small problem there, which is in response to the COVID pandemic, states have appropriately loosened their absentee ballot laws. Now, normally that's something Republicans, my side, has applauded because we've done very well with absentee voters. And many of the mm -hmm. mechanics in the middle of the RNC are very unhappy about the president's rhetoric. You can't trust your absentee vote. But like here in California, for example, which is really kind of a cutting edge pioneer in absentee voting, I'm what's called a permanent absentee voter. In other words, I long ago requested that I be an absentee voter. So they preemptively send me a ballot. Though part of the Republican critique has been some states, and I think they point at Nevada a lot, are preemptively sending people ballots. Now, is that without the opt-in? Because I haven't really yes. dug into this. So that is the one question, you yeah. know, the opt-in versus not opt-in. Maybe you could talk about that for a minute. So a couple of states are doing that. I think that's probably not considered best practice. Most states, right. and I don't think, hmm, I, I can't say for certain, so I don't want to venture a guess, but I would say the vast majority of the swing states are not doing it that way. You still have They're to opt in. your you ask. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, there are so many, I, I tell you, I, I did a deep dive into the rejection of absentee ballots and how they actually make sure that the person who is the voter is a, the voter of the ballot is actually the voter. Um, it's very interesting. Um, most states require, as you know, a signature. Uh, validation and right. address validation. And um, there are systems, I mean, there's vibrant uh, systems. That isn't why most absentee ballots are rejected. 1% historically of absentee ballots have always been rejected. And the 
60% of that 1% is because they get there too late. So that raises a lot of questions this year, right? About with all of the changing deadlines and the postal and service. The and the Philadelphia lawsuit on the three-day yeah. window. Yikes, yeah. exactly. But, you know, um, troubling, we, we reported this last uh, week, you know, there are some troubling aspects. One is what you point to. You want to make sure that the person who's doing that you've sent the ballot to is actually a legitimate voter. Um, most states now have tracking devices on absentee ballots. So the, they're really designed for the purposes of the voters. So just like if you're going to send a package, Federal Express, you can track that package, you can track your ballot. Right. And that's a great way to ensure that, you know, so suddenly if you find out that you've cast a ballot, you haven't voted yet, you know there's a problem and you could report that. But that yeah. rarely happens. You know, yeah. it rarely happens. So. It's right on the envelope in California. You know, when you vote, I've tracked all three of my absentee ballots. They've all been received. <laughs> and they're, they're doing great. You so, think you're in Chicago, Mike? You think you're in Chicago? <laughs> no, I've been voting there for decades, whether I know it or not. Uh, no, but seriously, the tracking is important. It is important. And when you talk to people who administer, um, abs- whose states are largely mail-in states, and there are five of them that do it exclusively this way, they say that, um, you know, they have had such small incidents, instances of actual voter fraud that it's negligible. So, okay, system's not perfect, but I think we can have a lot of confidence that uh, that by and large, this is going to work. You know, the problem perhaps is going to be on the back end, counting these things, yeah, which totally. takes a lot longer. You know, it's interesting, just anecdotally, I had a friend who's a poll watcher in Virginia uh, ping me, and she said the main problem they're having with absentees, and people forget, there is an error factor in elections. You know, mail machines eat stuff up, voting machines jam. This thing is not 100%, but it's really good by world standards. Well, this year they're having, at least in this Virginia area, they're having a special problem. They haven't, they see this at a small level, and now it's a little bigger which is people are so psyched up in this election on both sides. When they fill out the dot, they also write next to it, underline Donald Trump or Joe Biden to make sure (laughs) the counters don't screw up. The problem is that voids your ballot in most places when you, when you write on it as well as do the dot. So these poor people who thought by writing it in all caps and underlining it five times that nothing could go wrong. Actually, their ballots are getting kicked. Um, I hadn't so heard that. That's incredible. Follow the instructions. It's right there on <laughs> yeah. the absentee form. Cynthia, you've been doing an amazing job reporting on this. Uh, what uh, are networks and a network like yours uh, doing to protect not only the integrity but the credibility of the voting process, especially as we announce the returns on election night? So I, I, just before we get on this, um, on this call, I was on a network call about election night, anticipating uh, our coverage. And um, the executive in charge of the operation said, I want us to be right. I, don't, I want us to go slow and steady. This is not a race. And I think, you know, you might not have heard that in newsrooms uh, uh, in past elections. I think, you know, we always want to be right. Um, but this year particularly, we're all doing this under very complicated circumstances. I mean, I'm sitting in my front hall here, and I'm going to be doing uh, election coverage from here. Um, we're not all together. That's a concern. I think the elections, uh, the, the, the team that actually will 
end up calling states as, as, as they do, are well aware of the percentage of absentee ballots in some states that will remain. I take your point. Florida, no. Florida will probably be able to give us results very quickly because they can start counting more quickly. But Michigan and states and, and Pennsylvania are not going to be able to give us. And so whatever those initial um, numbers are may not be reflected when the later votes come in. So I think that we're going to go very slowly and be very careful and be as transparent as possible. I think that's the best thing we can do is to say what we don't know as well as what we do. What do you do if President Trump gets up at midnight uh, and on the basis of the votes counted so far, what Mike calls the red mirage, says, I've won uh, and I'm reelected and that's it, and then starts litigating? How did the networks handle? Well, everyone was troubled, I think, to hear the president say that the vote count had to be finalized on election night. <laughs> I mean, that's just, it, first of all, as you two know better than anybody, the vote is never certified on election night. Most states take weeks to cert actually certify the vote. Uh, we do projections on election night. Uh, you know, I think that, I don't know, that's a really good question. I'll have to, what would we do? I think we'd, we would probably, you'd have to take the, what the president said and you'd have to put it in a lot of context and say that at this point there are no official results, I think is what you'd have to do. But, you know, there would be those, and I'm not sure exactly how I feel about this, who would say putting that kind of a statement on television is so inflammatory um, especially if it's not known to be true. Uh, yeah. But we sure, haven't, we sure haven't held back in, in not putting things on television that we know not to be true. So I don't know. Good question. What should we do? What should we do, <laughs> well, you two? I'll give you one pitch. Uh, I had this in an op-ed two weeks ago in the uh, Washington Post. And I say this as somebody who's happily in the pay with, of NBC News for many years. And I'll be there on election night. They'll have the mute button ready because I'll try to call the election at, at 7.30 when I see the first 15 precincts in Florida come in. But one of the things I think has to be different, sometimes the networks fall to make this a television spectacular, you know, yeah. the Super Bowl of elections, because yeah. that's the nature of the news show business. Yeah. And I think the instincts are to try to avoid that. And I think that's a great instinct. Um, one of the problems is, as you well know from working in television, the graphics departments kind of get into an arms race between the networks of who can chart up all the data. And the data is very confusing to people. And the problem we're going to have is that most of the polling says the voters who say they plan to vote on election day tend to be significantly more for Trump. Well, the voters mm -hmm. who voted by mail have been claiming in the polling to be significantly more for Biden. So when you see those first 25% of the returns come in and Donald Trump is up 10 points in Michigan and up seven in Pennsylvania and up 11 in Florida, people who aren't election nerds are going to freak out, you know, all over LA, right. it's, it, there's going to be, it, it, it's, it's going to be kale being thrown out windows. You know, it's going to be a, <laughs> a left wing riot. Priuses are going to be left with uh, no charger plugged in. It could be really wild. But the point is, one thing the networks know is the exit polling. And exit polling is very hard to do. They all use, well, everybody but Fox and AP uses Edison, which is the best at it. And there's a tendency to kind of move slow on that. My argument has been, most people don't know, exit polling has two components. This year, actually, three components. One component is, at about 40,000 places, they actually ask voters what they did on the way out. And they report that. 
against the computer model. The other thing they do that is less well-known, and this year they also have in-person at some early polling places. That's new. But they do a massive poll. It actually started 10 days ago. Uh, a big phone poll, just like we political consultants do, and online, a hybrid poll in about 20 states of, of voters looking to, one, calibrate against their election day, and two, to talk to the half that may vote earlier absentee. And that part of the polling is technically the most accurate. So the networks are going to know a lot about the uncounted vote in Michigan and Wisconsin. And if I were them, I would lift the veil a little more on that. I'd explain it. And I wouldn't try to project it totally because there's a margin of error. But I think there's nothing wrong once the polls are closed to say, here are the early returns. Now, we also have a scientific poll within 3%. Dr. Statistics here can explain of what we believe will be 50% of the electorate this year here in Wisconsin, the exit voting. And while we won't give you exact numbers, we have a count that's going to take three lungs. We can, we can tell you that while you see Donald Trump ahead in this vote, we see Joe Biden significantly ahead in that vote, if that's the result, to demystify the missing vote. Because otherwise, Trump will say, yeah, they printed a million phony ballots in Wisconsin in Hillary's basement, and they're trying to steal the election. We all know I won. The results are right there. And the Russians will get involved, you know, not that they're capable of doing any, uh, any hacking or anything. So it could be a mess. So yeah. I really think that the, the absentee exits are a good weapon and some of the shyness about exit data needs to go away this year on election night. Now, it landed with a thud, but I think it's a good pitch. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting pitch. And I, and I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what NBC's plans are with regard to that, but I think that you know, that kind of transparency. I'll, I'll tell you, the uh, Secretary of State in Ohio, Frank LaRose, uh, who we interviewed recently, had decided that he was going to uh, let people know how many absentee ballots had been counted during election night, how many remained. He was going to be as transparent as possible for exactly that reason. Um, because, you know, if you go to bed and uh, one or the other is way ahead and you wake up and it's changed, I mean, therein lies, in that rub could lie right. a, lot of, a lot of problems. Particularly yeah. when the president's calling any uncounted vote at midnight fraud. And, you know, well, he's capable of that. This is an incredible myth that our elections are always decided on election night. Yeah. Sometimes they're decided in the middle of the night. Sometimes they're decided when we get to the next morning. Landslides can be determined pretty, uh, pretty fast. But, you know, if 1916, Charles Evans Hughes, the Republican nominee, later Chief Justice, uh, went to bed, uh, thought he was, had been elected president. A reporter called in the morning and uh, the maid who answered the phone said, I'm sorry, the president-elect is sleeping. And the reporter said, why don't you wake him up and tell him he's not president-elect? Because California had come in and had voted mm. for Woodrow Wilson. Uh, in 1960, people thought Kennedy had won California. They counted the absentees over the next week, and it turned out that Nixon won California by 30,000 votes. So I think it's a complete myth that somehow or other we're supposed to know by midnight either West Coast time or East Coast time on election night. Bob, can I interrupt for one sec? Just one caveat before we do the big shift. And Cynthia, I think you have something to say too. Just quickly, there is one other side to this, and we I just want to hang another lantern on it. Florida is going to report fast. It's going to report everything. And if Trump doesn't win it, he's probably toast. Same with Ohio. So there could be a scenario where at 11 at night, a car bill was pitched yesterday, and I think he could be right that we have 78, 9, 85% of Florida in, 
and Biden's showing a pretty good lead in the right counties, um, then it could be a little different deal, which is, look, it's going to take us four days to sort it out. But we know for a fact that Joe Biden has carried a must-win state for Donald Trump, and that gives us a lot of insight. I just wanted to add this. You know, you guys are the pros when it comes to all of these kinds of, you know, electoral college voting patterns. I'm I'm, I'm not knowledgeable about it, but here's what I do know. I do know that the things that the president has said have greatly undermined confidence in our system. And I think that's the tragedy. I mean, whoever wins this election, um, American voters, American citizens have lost a lot of confidence in institutions and in the way that we conduct our elections. And that's a tragedy. And somehow we've got to figure out a way to build that back. Okay, I want to go from that to something related to it, and that's voter suppression. Uh, mm. There there are reports in Florida, for example, and other places that voters have been sent intimidating emails or mail that says, vote for Trump or else we know where you live. There have been lawsuits filed this election season to limit voting options. Uh, in Arizona, the courts have ruled that voters won't have a chance to sign their mail-in ballots to cure them if they, they failed to sign them. And in Alabama, uh, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, actually overturned a lower court ruling that allowed curbside voting for people with disabilities, which to me is a no-brainer. Why do you make them get out of the car? How effective is voter suppression likely to be this year? What are you finding out about it? And are voters going to be discouraged? Yeah, listen, I mean, you can only hope that uh, it won't be rampant. There are lots of indicates, as you just say, of, of individual locations where things are not right. I, I would point out another one. Most states, when they say they're going to spoil or not count an absentee ballot now, contact that voter and say, hey, you made a mistake. Fix it. Come back in and we'll let you do it. In Texas, they have asked for and been given permission not to notify voters. So some technical thing, you don't put your, you, you put your birth date instead of the date or whatever, and the ballot is spoiled, too bad, so sad. That's what, I mean, don't we really want everyone who's eligible to be able to cast their ballot? Uh, it's a, listen, I, I, have a, I have a story about this on, on um, uh, t- tomorrow night on uh, Nightly News. We, we, we sat down with uh, Reverend, Lawson, who of course was right hand to uh, during the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King called him one of the noblemen. Ninety-two years old, still teaches a class at UCLA. Um, you know, he said it is ever thus, but you know, we can't we can't lose faith, we can't lose hope. And he he said about the governor of Texas, he said, "Well, you know, it used to be that people would sit on their front porch and shoot." Uh, people of color, they didn't want to vote. Well, the governor's not doing exactly that, but it's going to amount to the same thing. Many people, you know, and also the one drop-off location per county, some of those counties as big as, uh, you know, some eastern states, uh, that's going to have the effect on many poor people and many people of color of not being able to vote, along with some of the other things that you're talking about. So, you know, it's alive and well. We have to hope that it's less than it once was, and we have to keep pushing the boundaries of this because nobody in good conscience can say they don't want everyone who's eligible to be able to vote. That shouldn't be a Republican or a Democratic. Yeah, no, and traditionally, it, well, uh, I can go on and on. I, I, I'm not too worried about the nasty email stuff because that happens in every campaign from every side, independent, active. But what Governor Abbott has done this year has been shameful. 
uh, trying to make early voting a lot harder, some of the staggering around in Georgia. I will say, though, as bad as it is and as you know, condemnable as it ought to be, this is a brute force election. Uh, there is massive interest in it, and people are turning out at a massive rate. We have more early and absentee, not more, but basically almost as much in Texas now as the entire election last time. Isn't it? It's 75 million people have already voted, which is more than a third of the registered voters in the country. Right. We're probably another five to seven million in the pipeline and some more walk in voting this weekend. So it is enormous. So awful things at the edges like that. Well, there's no reason for them and they should be widely condemned. This thing is so big. It is quite possible we'll break the 150 million turnout number, which is would be record setting. Uh, so in that circumstance, if the country is lurching in one direction on this election, a, a little bit of voter suppression, as bad as it is, I don't think will change the outcome. Yeah, you know, I don't maybe think so at either. the very edges, but you know, the Dems are in a point now, if any of these polls are accurate, and I believe they mostly are, that they're running the table for like, hey, we won Texas, woohoo! You know, and I tell my communist Democrat friends, don't be greedy. You know, just take the 340 in the electoral vote and take the win and don't cry all night because you almost won Texas. But point being, in America, there should be none of this, none of this uh, shenanigans. Well, uh, and you worry about down ballot races, Mike, right? I mean, down ballot races are are different. Purdue in Georgia is a great example, a very tight Senate race there. So what's going to happen in the Senate? Since I have you, since I have you two guys all to myself, what's going to happen? Is the Senate going to flip? I think more likely than not, though, it's, you know, if it's a big wave election, for sure. If it's just a solid Biden victory, there's a scenario where the Dems come up one short. But if I had to bet now, I'd bet that they uh, they get to at least 50. Is there a possibility of a landslide or is that really not yeah. in the cards? Yes. Yeah. Look, in our poll this morning, uh, the USC Dornsife Daybreak poll is 11 percent. The polls are settling in somewhere between nine and 11 Ronald Reagan, when he won in 1980, uh, won by 9.7% in the popular vote. And 12 Democratic senators lost their seats. People no one expected were going to lose their seats. Uh, I had a a breakfast with uh, Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, and and Senator Robert Byrd about a week before. And I presented my argument that if Reagan broke out and won, by eight or 10 points, we were going to lose control of the Senate. And I had talked with Teddy about this, and he said, I want you to explain it to Byrd. And Byrd just dismissed me and basically said, you're wrong. We're safe. So I think that if the polls are right and Biden wins by eight and a half, nine and a half, 10 points, Democrats will certainly take the Senate. If it's closer, I think uh, I'm with Mike. It's right, on, it's right on the knife's edge. By the way, anybody, we're going to turn this over to Q&A in a couple of minutes. So just put your questions in the chat feature. And then Mike, who's technologically much more competent than I, uh, will uh, ask the questions. Uh, What should we do long-term to fix this? Is there a long-term fix to make our election system safer, more viable, more credible? Guess what? One thing we know we can do is we can spend some money and Congress, you know, should be ashamed of itself. Um, 
estimates, independent estimates, were that in order for the states to really upgrade their systems the way they needed to do this year during the pandemic was a $4 billion, 3 to $4 billion price tag. Uh, you know, Congress let it stand at a $400 million um, uh, appropriation out of the CARES Act. So Congress is going to decide that it matters. The states are not going to be able to do this alone. And, you know, while everything can't be, as, as, as a very wealthy friend of mine once said, all problems can't be solved with money, but a lot of them can. And a lot <laughs> of the problems that plagued this election could be solved with money if Congress has a will. Now, let's just say the Democrats did pass the bill to give more money to, uh, to the election systems in the states and Republicans uh, blocked it. Just saying. Mike? Uh, well, that's the Democrats' fault for their prolific ways. I still remember the, the, the county with the big problems in Florida where we I actually have one of the old uh, voting machines with the Chads in my office uh, was, of course, a county famous for Democratic incompetence and corruption. So I don't think a blank check is the answer, but more money is clearly the answer. I mean, for the price of one-third of an aircraft carrier, we can secure our elections. I would think that's a no-brainer. Yeah, well, it's a start. It doesn't solve everything, but it sure is start. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and the other thing is we've got to acknowledge and really beef up our, and, 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 and we are, I think, in many ways attempting to do this, but this, this whole idea of ransomware is becoming a, yeah. you, know, you saw, I don't know if you guys saw what happened this morning, what's going on. Uh, hospitals are being um, in the plan uh, to, to take and seize about a hundred U.S. hospitals um, by some, rogue cyber actor uh, is underway. Uh, as of a couple of hours ago, four hospitals had already been attacked. It's a nefarious and evil and cynical plan in the midst of COVID, but very effective if you want to, if you want to really disrupt things. And they say, send us Bitcoin or we're going to close down your systems. That's what happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 this is kind of the nasty iceberg tip of a larger problem that our infrastructure, though it's been hardened somewhat, is kind of based on a lot, you know, the miracle of the internet, a lot of open source systems. So you can, I mean, literally the Israelis and many people think we and others were involved, got into some machine tools in Iran and spun their centrifuges so high the machines exploded. Um, Because many, many things are accessible. Your Bluetooth headset, uh, yourself, that are accessible because that's the miracle of the way we trade information. But it makes things like the power grid, municipal water plants, hospitals, air traffic control to a kind of lesser extent. But it makes those systems incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, this is something that there's been a lot of kind of finding the problem. But it's expensive to really harden it and do something. But we have to. So some of the the, uh, events that have been going on in the last couple of weeks – uh, Intel and cybersecurity officials tell us that the actor uh, in this case is making them even more frightened than what the actor has so far been detected as doing. The actor is called Energetic Bear. Energetic Bear are a group of highly skilled Russian hackers. The A team is compared to the, 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 the crowd that was uh, messing around in 2016, according to them. This is the group that did, in fact, has penetrated the U.S. power grid, uh, a nuclear power plant in Kansas, and many other operating systems within the U.S. So it is a worry. Now, there is a red line that if a foreign uh, entity crossed it, 
um, there would be serious consequences, but it's, it's a real worry. As uh, Frank Fuglusi, who used to be uh, head of counterintelligence of the FBI, said to me the other day, imagine, you know, you don't have to do very much. Right. Turn off the lights in the city for the afternoon. Yeah, and it, it's tricky because under, under kind of the old school, it's like, all right, they do this, we do that. And we have quite an arsenal of cyber weapons. But the problem yes. is, it's like germ warfare. Once you turn them loose, a year later, they come back and get you. So, and then all of a sudden your bank account disappears overnight. Nobody has ever heard of you. So it just is something where it, it, the real solution, I think, and Cynthia, you're deep into this stuff, but the smart cyber people say is you got to spend the money to harden what you got. And that's, yeah. you know, who pays? Does the power company pay or does the government pay? It's, it's, a, it's a vexing thing, but we're, we're going to have a bad experience in this. And then there'd be a lot of finger pointing of why didn't we yeah. do it? Because you open one little attachment and you can open a whole network into a whole world of right. pain. You know, right. I opened an attachment the other day and I thought, oh my goodness, what if I, I immediately sent it to her. I was not, but I mean, it was a dumb thing to do. I didn't know the sender. I shouldn't yeah. have opened it, you know? So we got to all be on. Ask John Podesta about that. Yeah, well. You open an attachment bingo. and some, all your emails. So I think we should turn this over to, Q&A from uh, our audience. Mike, you have a questions, I think, in front of you. Oh, but Bob, you forgot that commerce makes the world go round. I'm going to start with a little ad. We've been doing a lot of these things at the Center for the Political Future on Zoom, in addition to all the stuff we do with students and internships, our poll, just the, the myriad uh, things we try to do to serve the purpose of a, a workable bipartisan politics. And to do that, we could use your help. You can support USC and the Center for the Political Future by joining our center leadership circles. Your donations tax-free for scholarships, events, student jobs, and so many programs designed to help Trojan promote civil discourse and help us do what needs to be done now, which is discuss these topics that will, in the end, we hope, help save the American democracy. If you go to our website, there's a lot of info about how you can play a critical role. So I appreciate the many who have given and any who may decide to give today. Now, questions. Oh, this is, this is a big one we get a lot. This is from Anonymous Bear. Uh, uh -oh. No, Anonymous. Anonymous. <laughs> this is not Energetic Bear. Yeah. Uh, I've slumped down. Yeah, and this is from, from Incredibly Unenergetic Bear, which is my secret pen name. Uh, <laughs> in districts with close races and the potential for recount, what happens when there are no voter-verified paper audit trails? Without a quote-unquote receipt, how can voting officials do a recount? How can voters be sure that what they have entered into the mysterious machine is actually what the machine recorded? Cynthia. You should have put your name because that is a really good question and a really important one. Now, back in 2016, 82% of the votes did not have any kind of paper backup. So that would have been a real problem. One of the beauties and unintended consequence of COVID and so many people voting by mail, the predictions are now that well over 92% of the votes cast in this election will have a paper record. So that's a good thing. What you do in a jurisdiction that doesn't have one, I, I have to tell you, I don't know. Uh, during 2016, I put that question to some election officials in um, Pennsylvania, and alarmingly, they didn't know either. So I don't know. Do you guys know? 
I guess you'd go to court and argue. I don't know. But good question. The, the paper trail is so important. Well, and that's one of the things they need money for to upgrade those systems in places where they don't have them. It's just a question of money. They're not clinging onto them because they love them. Yeah. Here's a question from Hollywood tycoon Sean Daniel, a great friend of the center. Uh, and uh, and an all-around good guy. The New Yorker is out today and with the following article, quote, in Pennsylvania, Republicans might only need to stall to win. What do you think of the issue of Republican legislatures making plans to install their own electors? Bob, you want to start with that and then Cynthia? Look, I think most politicians are interested in self-preservation. And were the Pennsylvania Republican legislature to overturn the will of the voters and appoint electors uh, contrary to the will of the voters, I think they would pay a very heavy price at the next election. I don't think it will happen. But, Cynthia, what's your take on it? Well, I actually talked to the the, uh, Pennsylvania attorney general about this matter, and he said that he didn't think it was going to happen either. So we did some digging. A little-known election law, which applies to all the states, the elect- the Voting Act of 1877, which gives every state 41 days after the election is held to report their results to Congress so that it can be officiated. One little detail in that law uh, is that in the case of two sets of electors, the group of electors who have been signed by the governor of the state are the group that will be certified and seated. So, and the governor of Pennsylvania is a Democrat. Correct. Yeah, I the New Yorker has moved their mission from arts and culture to arts, culture, and paranoia. They've been publishing <laughs> a few of these kind of liberal nightmare scenario things, and I've never bought the whole faithless elector deal. Now, that said, if you Google faithless elector, and this I know is a little different. This is kind of the seven days in May, you know, takeover plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen either. But every year, a couple of people in the Electoral College don't vote for who they're supposed to vote for. Yeah. You know, in there are a lot of mechanisms to kind of replace them. The parties have a lot of influence in most states. But there is a little kind of 1898, and Bob, you probably helped write that law. Um, there's a little. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was more senior then by Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had an intern do it. You gave him a quill pen. <laughs> but it, it, um, it's a lot trickier than kind of the sci-fi version of that. It, the scary electoral college scenario. Uh, is that if it were a tie, 269 to 269, it would go to the U.S. House. And people say, great, Nancy Pelosi, the Biden, but we're in. Well, no, the states do not vote by number. They vote, each state has one vote, kind of like the Senate with one vote. And the vote for each state is decided by which state has more congressmen. So the vote from North Dakota is equal to the vote from California. And even though the Democrats control the House, if you look at that, and you apportion that way, the Republicans control the tiebreaker in the House. So that would be, that's the best realistic in a, in a tied electoral college kind of crazy scenario. Unlikely if the polling is anywhere near true. Is the electoral college going to be around for the rest of our lives? I think so. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's very hard Should to get it rid be? of. Should it be? No, it might you want to use your line, Mike? I'm not going to Yeah, steal Bob's it. setting me up for my joke. He stepped on the punchline <laughs> at the last speech, which is, you know who invented the Electoral College? 
Alexander Hamilton. This is the one song that never made the musical. Cha, cha, cha. <laughs> what the hell is I thinking? Miranda, cut that. There is a movement. It takes all kinds. A lot of states have already, there are two ideas on the electoral college because we're getting deep into the plumbing and wiring now. So if you need dental surgery, now's the time to get it. This is, we're trying to make it quick. One idea that the Republicans kind of like is that the electoral college should be, they should cast not all the electoral in one state based on who won the state, but they should be divided in ratio. If you win half the state, you get half the electors. The Republicans love that because it slaughters the Democrats in California and New York. The other theory is they kind of get rid of it. And there's uh, some states have passed legislation to do that, but it, it is a long and complicated process. So, you know, should it go? I tend to lean toward the reform side on that. Will it go? That is a long road. Mike, next question. All right. This is from Kathleen Beck. The poll said yesterday, I think our poll, but I'm not sure, that Trump may still win the Electoral College. If there is a landslide for Biden, will the Electoral College follow? Well, Bob, why don't you take that? It, it is. There's no yeah. way if, if Biden wins by eight or nine or 10, there's virtually no way that Trump can win the Electoral College. And by the way, if it happened, it would cause a profound crisis of legitimacy in our political system. It's one thing to have 600,000 votes or even a 2 million vote margin, uh, 2% like the last time with Hillary Clinton. It would be another thing to have a massive margin and then suddenly to have people say, yeah, but the guy who lost by a massive margin got elected because of the way the Electoral College works. That would create a crisis and I think might lead to change. Yeah, the, it's happened five times in American history where the popular vote has been different than the Electoral College, never in the 20th century, twice since 2000, 2000 itself, and now 16. And part of that is that the country is becoming more dense by politics. In other words, there are 3,300 counties in the U.S., essentially. And when Trump beat Hillary, Hillary got the bulk of her vote from 200 of those counties. So the way the system works, kind of like the U.S. Senate, the way the founders started with this electoral thing is to spread it out so the big cities can't muscle the little rural areas. Well, now the rural areas are more Republican, and the Democrats have huge numbers in, in certain places. So it's, some would argue we're going to have more of that kind of thing. This year, it would really be hard unless the election is close and it's another 3 million vote thing. But if it is a 7 million vote, deal. It just mathematically is extremely hard in an honest count. Uh, Mark Donahue has a, has a question here. How big a problem are we likely to have with Trump's plea for his supporters, presumably at least some of whom will have weapons watching the polls? Bob, I know you've got your blunderbuss ready for Century <laughs> City 14. What do you think? We're going to have gunfire at the polls? I use a bow and arrow. Uh, I think this is actually a, a, a dangerous call uh, that's come from some parts of the right, that people who are armed should be at these polling places. Uh, I think the states have an obligation to protect uh, the polling places and to not let this kind of intimidation happen. Cynthia, have you heard anything about this? Well, I heard that yesterday in, in uh, their calling on retired police officers in Minneapolis. Um, the Trump campaign asked them to be summoned up to go and be the eyes and ears of the campaign at polls. Um, but in terms of, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, 
chatter. We haven't been able to nail down any actual, you know, that there are going to be these armed groups at uh, polling places. Maybe there will be. Certainly hope there won't be. Uh, talk about voter intimidation. Um, but, I mean, we've yet to been able, be able to nail down any actual group that's actually protesting outside any of the early spots. Yeah, there's, there was one in Virginia, a Trump, group of Trump people who were yelling at yeah. all the people who were in line. I think the states probably have the power to do something about this if they're willing to, yeah. should it happen to occur. But look, we're facing an election of uncertainties. Even though the polling has been remarkably stable for several months now, even though Trump is behind, although not by a lot everywhere, in almost all the battleground states, there are uncertainties going into this election, and that's what's going to make election night or election week such a challenge for the networks and for the sanity of everybody. Yeah, th this election could be rougher like everything connected to Trump. I want it to be over. <laughs> Me too. Though one ugly little secret is guns have been quietly around polling places for a long time. One of the little problems you sometimes have in Southern campaigns is your perfectly well-intended retired Marine Corps sergeant brings the 38 in an ankle holster in case there's trouble, you know, and luckily nobody ever does anything with them. But this, this year could be a little rougher. We will see. Um, I'm, I'm actually thinking better, better heads will prevail. Uh, but we, so. we will find out. So uh, a question for Cynthia, you kind of brought this up before, but maybe do a, a quick recap because we're running up against it on time. This is from Gary Freeman. Since 2016, what specific improvements have been made to improve voting security in this year's election? Yeah, Gary, so essentially the federal government has volunteered its expertise in terms of cybersecurity defense, and most states have taken them up on it. So most state systems are much more tightly wired than they were four years ago. In addition to that, there have been uh, outreaches, and um, as I mentioned at the top, what blows my mind is uh, th there weren't sufficient security clearances by voting w for voting officials in various states so that anyone from Homeland Security or the FBI could even talk to them about threats as they saw them happening in real time. That's been remedied. So those are a couple of things that have been done. It's like after 9-11 when the FBI and CIA computers spelled Arabic names differently so they could never trade information, <laughs> which gummed that up for two and a half years. Uh, here's a question from Mr. Frank Downballot Rugani. Good question. Are there states where the downballot races may elevate the performance of the top of the ticket? For example, will local legislative races in Texas potentially buoy Biden? I would say in 99% of the time, no, it's the other way around. But Bob, Cynthia, anybody disagree? I agree with that. I think the great uh, Democratic get-out-the-vote machine in this election is Donald Trump. Democrats and a lot of independents and what we're seeing in our polling now is even some non-college-educated white women who voted for him last time, they don't think he should be reelected. So I think that's why voters are turning out. There may be an exception to this somewhere, but generally I agree with Mike. The, the, the Donald Trump is the issue in this election. In many ways, what Biden wanted was to have this be a referendum on Trump, and I think that's what it's become. It's Trump versus COVID, and Trump's not winning. Uh, that is a great line, Bob. This is from Anonymous. Voting machine manufacturers are private companies, and their programming is proprietary. Why are we trusting our public elections to private companies 
with no transparency or accountability. Do electronic voting machine manufacturers tend to favor a political party? Does their donation history tell us anything about who they might support? Shouldn't they be barred from financial support to candidates or parties? Let me, let me just quickly say, they take it pretty darn seriously. And the states, when they buy them, I've been involved in this. Um, it, it's a pretty stringent process. I did know a guy in Detroit who could do miracles on a shoot votematic machine with a long screwdriver, but most of those days are, are past now. And I, I think those companies take it pretty seriously. But Cynthia, what do you think? Well, look, I'd say this. Three companies manufacture over 90% of the machines that we vote on. Uh, so that's a big concentration of power. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to the largest of those manufacturers, which is ES&S in Omaha, and they showed me around. And, you know, they're very proud of their record. Um, but there are some concerns. Uh, they are not transparent. They don't want to tell you who's on their board. They don't want to tell you uh, much about the company. And so there are some concerns um, that the, the, the questioner is uh, is raising. I think that it's, it's, it's fair to say uh, these should be viewed as public trusts and that there's, the public should have, there, there should be a lot more transparency with the companies that are making these machines. If there's nothing to hide, don't hide it. Gary Wolfson has a question. Gary has been online checking polls because he wants to know, do you think that the election is tightening such as Arizona seems to be doing. Bob? I mean, look, you can cherry-pick polls and come to certain conclusions, and it depends on the quality of the polls. Uh, What we're seeing in our data is no election tightening. If you look at the CNN data that came out today, no election tightening. Uh, I think the NBC Wall Street Journal data shows that nationally there's no election tightening. But, of course, there's going to be noise in various states, and you're going to have different polls. I mean, we had one poll yesterday in Wisconsin, the Washington Post uh, uh, ABC poll that showed Biden 17 points ahead and the Marquette University poll that showed him five points ahead. So you're going to have noise, but there's no sign in any of the data or any of our internal data that we have that somehow or this election is tightening. Yeah, I, I would argue in some ways in the national vote is tightening a little, but there's room for it to be tightening. Careful on those state polls. You can cherry pick there. There's a lot of noise there. I'm telling all my friends, why do you have to check the polls every day here at the last weekend? What does it do? Other, It's like Googling sharp pain behind my eye and tingle in my finger. You don't want to <laughs> Google that because you're going you're gonna to have a brain tumor or a cold. So I would say <laughs> turn off the damn polls and wait for the election rather than drive yourself crazy. <laughs> last question, because we're almost out of time here. This is from Gregory Miller. The exit polls to help forecasting outcomes are interesting, especially the phone and online, I should add, a, a survey of earlier absentee voters. But how do we know these polls are accurate and people are being honest in the survey? What is done to ensure their integrity? Seems like a dangerous idea to turn to polls to help explain what may happen. Well, I'll just quickly say and turn over to you guys to finish. Polls done well are science, and they are good, and most people tell the truth, and there are tricks in polls to know who may not be. So um, the, the good polling science is, is helpful because it, it shows you and reveals a lot of what's really going on. That's why political science relies on it. All those exit polls are adjusted after the poll to zero them in, and that's what political science scientists look at to look at former elections. So 
Uh, exit polling in person, that is a, it's very tough to do right, and there's some error factor there. But um, polling is kind of the, good polling is, is not a big problem. Yeah, I mean, I, the relevance of it here, I think, and this year, is what Mike was talking about earlier, that the networks could say, for example, or a network correspondent could say, uh, you know, X is ahead by this many thousand votes in this state, but our data appear to indicate that at the end of the day, when all the votes are counted, the result may be different than that. I don't know whether the networks will do that, but they certainly would have the capacity to do it. Uh, Cynthia, do you have any comment on this? No, I, I, you, I'm way outside my area of expertise in polling. I'll simply say, is my memory correct that the USC poll was one of the few national polls that actually saw Trump winning the election? Yeah, it certainly, it certainly was one of the few <laughs> polls that said he had a chance to win the election. Yeah. We managed to be right and wrong simultaneously. <laughs> I just remember the right part. We were wrong about the popular vote, but we were right about the direction of the election. And the error was only, the, uh, there was a slight oversampling of rural voters. Otherwise, it would have been right on when you corrected it. Well, it was more right than most of them, yeah. Cynthia, this has been great. So Mike and I want to thank all of the people in our audience, uh, the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival, the staff of the Center for the Political Future, which does a fabulous job putting this together. Uh, and most of all, we want to thank you. Because people have been asking, asking us about this for months, and at least we've been able to have a real discussion of it. And you've left me, at least, with some more confidence that we'll get an accurate election result, not necessarily on election night, but by the time we're done. Uh, by the way, we'll, uh, election R&D will be back at noon on November 5th to discuss the results of the election, assuming we have them. And on November 13th, we will have our... Warshaw Annual Political Conference uh, to talk about what happened in the election and what happens next. Thank you all for watching, and we'll see you shortly. Cynthia, thanks again. Never been more confident. And Cynthia, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll be back, I think, in a week to recap the election. So thanks yeah. for tuning in. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed the time. I learned a lot from you, too, as always. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube. And visit our website for upcoming programs.